You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 36 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris, and Bob saw some snowflakes, so he didn't come with us out to Garden City today. Uh, We're actually at the back end of a little rainstorm slash snowstorm, so we're actually looking out onto campus and seeing some nice, big, fluffy, white snowflakes. So if you're listening to this in July, haha. <laughs> so today we're coming to you from the Zwerbel, right? Zwerbel. Zwerbel Library at Adelphi University in Garden City, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The uh, Library Pros podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. We're now on iHeartRadio and Podbean or via any of the email subscription services we offer through our website, thelibrarypros.com. And if you like what you hear, consider leaving a review uh, on the uh, service of your choice. Uh, we're also on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. So joining us today from Adelphi University is Brian Lim. You're the Dean of Libraries, correct? Dean of University of Libraries. Dean of University of Libraries. Sally Stiglitz, Digital Learning and Instruction Librarian. I get that right? Yes, you do. Okay. And we have Tatiana Bryant, Outreach and Promotion Librarian. Hello. All right. And Ken Harold, Associate Dean for Digital Initiatives. Did I get that right, too? Yes, and Automated Services. And Automated Services. I always I miss that little piece all the time. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Uh, today we're going to speak with our group today about a number of uh, innovative things that are happening here at Zorbel Library. Uh, but before we dive into that, I want to learn more about Adelphi, the library, and our guests. So uh, let's go around the table. Uh, if you can, we can put you know, voices to names and uh, tell us about your background. So I guess we'll start with Dean Lamb. Hi, I'm Brian Lamb, the Dean of University of Libraries. And I've been at Adelphi for uh, four and a half, nearly five years. And it's been an enjoyable ride and it continues to be so. As we continue to evolve and innovate at a very exciting time and juncture in uh, academic, higher education history, library history. Uh, I feel like we are truly at a transformative moment that just keeps on going. Hi, I'm Sally Stieglitz, the Digital Learning and Instruction Librarian, and I've been here about a year and a half. I'm Tatiana Bryant. I'm the Outreach and Promotion Librarian, and I've been here for a little less than six months now. And this voice is Ken Harold, uh, Associate Dean, as I was introduced earlier for <laughs> digital initiatives and automated services. It's a mouthful, but um, everything's integrated and interoperable these days, so it's all about connectivity. So my, my career has been in a few different parts in libraries and IT, uh, but I love the systems work and getting people connected together. Excellent. So let's talk about Adelphi. Tell us about a little bit about the history of Adelphi and how the library fits into that whole, the whole uh, campus model. Adelphi began uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, we have our roots in Brooklyn uh, at the end of the 19th century. We uh, were located in Clinton Hill near what is now the Pratt uh, um, Institute campus. And we eventually moved out here in the late 20s, I believe it was 1929, to Garden City to this sylvan environment uh, here in the suburbs of New York City. Um, We are in the suburbs, but we are 
very deeply connected uh, to New York still um, through our through our curriculum, through our um, you know, the university's interest in maintaining uh, contact uh, with the cultural life of the city. We kind of straddle two worlds, and the library is part of two worlds in that regard. Um, you know, I looked up a little background on Adelphi before we got started here, and I saw that when they started it, at this college, it was 57 students and 16 instructors. And you know what? I think we still keep that high student-instructor uh, ratio. So it's a very personalized experience. <laughs> it's, it actually is pretty cool. Well, there's a great tradition here that I discovered coming from the West Coast of social justice. And uh, I just find it's amazing the care and concern of the students and administration and the faculty and our, our core teaching and learning areas of uh, social work, nursing, education, and so forth. Just really dedicated people working and studying here. It's been very impressive. And one thing that I had learned too, because I was one time I was an adjunct um, librarian at Dowling College, and at one point Dowling College was owned by Adelphi too. Right, you yes. were us. Yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. We have a very interesting history. Yeah, yeah. I found that I, I found it really interesting when you would go to the stacks and you get a really old reference book and it still had the Adelphi stamps all over it. Right. Please yeah. bring that back. Yeah, <laughs> and you know we have an incredible archives and special collections that really tells the story of we are and, uh, sp you know speaking of you know the New York region cultural life uh, we've had incredibly famous people such as uh, Ruth St. Dennis who was one of the founders of modern choreography in America and Jonathan Larson from Rent Jonathan Larson from Rent is a graduate um, we can probably go down a whole list and under understand our connections to um, you know, uh, the history of New York City cultural life, the, the cultural life of this region, and how much we've contributed to that. And an interesting co-educational history. Right. It was um, a very early co-educational college, but uh, based on some articles in the New York Times that I found when I was doing some research for um, administration on uh, Delphi alumni through the years, even though they chartered as co-educational, they forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and they didn't actually admit men until uh, right after World War II uh, under the GI Bill. If you want to see, um, there's a funny article. First male graduate at Adelphi, ex-sailor with 269 girls. It's <laughs> a lucky man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's interesting how they um, always have this inclusive history. Well, you know, you mentioned their, their origins over in Brooklyn on Clinton Avenue. Um, I went to St. Joseph's College in Patchogue, and they started almost literally across the street, and they were an all-women's college as well. I think Adelphi was the first women's college to become uh, co-educational. It's kind of strange how they were across the street from each other, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that really is kind of neat. So um, Adelphi now, do you know how many uh, majors they offer? I know I'm putting you on the spot. Good, good question. I don't have that number at no. my fingertips. It's full uh, arts and sciences, yeah. business school, nursing school, social work, right. a, a well-respected dance and theater program. Mm -hmm. It's very, very cool. So and one, the ahead, curriculum sorry. continues to evolve, and uh, you know our, our university is really looking at offering innovative curriculum that is increasingly interdisciplinary. And interconnected, you know, 
we now have on the table a, uh, a new major in the business of science, so connecting uh, business and science together as, uh, in an innovative way. And uh, we're looking at other, other kinds of programs that are being discussed um, that, are simp that are also merging two different disciplines um, or, or areas that are, um, you know, where you have now discussion about digital humanities and connecting the liberal arts to technology. And that's, I think, in, an increasing interest on this campus at this university. We're not just uh, undergrad also. We, we, have, we issue a great number of graduate degrees, and we have a few doctoral students. So it's a diverse community there. Most definitely. So most libraries, uh, or most universities, are, in terms of uh, one of the things that are graded when someone's looking for a, a place to go to school, is the library. The library is a huge factor in, with regard to how, what type of materials are going to be available at the university. So tell us about Zorable and tell us about, you know, what's going on here with the uh, with type of materials that you have available and, and how we'll get into later about moving forward with digitizing and all that other stuff. But tell us about what you have here. What we have here in the main campus um, at Zorable Library is a very active space for learning teaching and learning and collaboration and um, individual study. We also have uh, an excellent uh, collection of library resources, books on the shelves. Um, admittedly, the number of volumes that are on the shelves, the, number, the, the, the amount of print material we have is diminishing because more and more is available electronically, digitally, and that's where our students are, that's where our faculty are. Um, so. Increasingly, we are opening up spaces for uh, people. People, exactly. <laughs> this is the busiest library I've ever worked in. Yes, bar I none. Agree. Um, we have a central role of people gathering to study, to collaborate. Uh, the demands for quiet study are, you know, equal with folks asking for spaces where they could work together. So it's quite a challenge and. We're, we're carving out space where we can. It's limited, um, but it's like Grand Central here most, almost every day. And it's funny that you mentioned that because in, in our library, at the Sagem Public Library, and this is where Bob would start rolling his eyes and start you know, making fun of me, um, but it's my experience uh, that we're seeing that as well. There's a, a big demand for quiet study rooms and quiet study areas, but in the same breath, there's also a lot whether it's tutoring for high school or junior high school students, or whether it's uh, students from the local colleges getting together, whether it's Suffolk Community College, St. Joseph's, uh, uh, Malloy College, believe it or not, a lot of people in Suffolk County go to Malloy, um, and Adelphi students as well. We've, we've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-oh, um, uh-oh, uh-oh, I did the one thing I shouldn't have done, I mentioned the competition. So anyway, they're looking for a collaborative space, and Sachem has made some collaborative spaces that also have video display terminals available, all the various connectors, uh, and allows them to actually sit and talk and plug their laptops in and say, but look at this, I have this on my laptop. And I think collaborative spaces in libraries now, and tell me if you disagree, are as important as quiet study spaces. They're essential. Yeah, we had a program of, of expanding dedicated collaborative rooms prior to my coming here, uh, so Brian could describe it a little better, but we've got 10 dedicated 
higher tech rooms that can be scheduled uh, hour at a time students are in them almost fully throughout the day and doing a number of things either like you said bringing their own devices and sharing their own information or plugging in and using the display in the room um, it's just growing to the point where we're almost at full capacity with those rooms right and whiteboard uses and whiteboard yes. uses whiteboard, yes and uh, increasing demand for whiteboards i know that tatiana has been tracking that and uh, and looking at other opportunities to use the spaces here in the library beyond just collaboration but uh, i know you could probably talk about maybe what's happening today yeah. with the international students group oh yes yeah, <laughs> <in the lounge>. <laughs> sorry <laughs> today um i was still thinking about the whiteboards um but yes so um we're really opening up the library as a, a place for student organizations on campus to utilize um, beyond their, their research needs. So there's an international students orientation taking place in the library today, um, and we're turning over that space. And we have a few other events planned this semester and moving forward where we're, um, we're transitioning the library for that use. You know, I have to ask, and it's kind of going off our script for a second, and just thinking to my time at Dowling, uh, during the, the crunch time for finals, we used to keep the library open extra hours and provide like a coffee station with donuts and other things to refuel. Do you do that too here too? Yes, yes. Um, 24 hours um, during finals week um, each semester, and um, we've had the SGA, the Student Government Association, um, donate food and coffee um, and, and set that up throughout the building for students um, as part of relaxation activities for the week. See, that really is, it's a nice way to engage students uh, in a stressful time. And it, it, you can almost control where they're having their coffee too, right? <laughs> well, in a way. <laughs> But about being the place to be during those time periods, we are even more busy than ever. I mean, we've had people sitting on the floors, unfortunately. The demand for space is just huge. We brought in 40 replacement chairs in the last year just to swap out with you know, some that might have been broken. They are completely absorbed into the library somewhere. They've found a home in uh, aisleways, uh, niche areas where the students have just put them themselves. Uh, so we don't have to provide everything. Uh, the students bring their own tech, um, and they find their own study areas as well. Yeah. And, and uh, what we're seeing is uh, reflecting the fact that our enrollment here at this university is the highest it's been in a decade. And we're seeing, contrary to national trends, increasing enrollment at our university. Next day's volumes for the university. Yes, and so we're, we're accommodating these changes as best we can. It's great, actually, to have this kind of attention on us, and uh, Brian could describe more yeah. our strategic plans and how the library's own planning has just folded hand-in-hand hand with uh, what the university is developing. Yeah, and our, um, in the university's strategic plan, it, uh, the library is called out a number of times, and uh, with regard to the library as a social cultural space that's in the plan and um, we're so glad that you know Tatiana Bryant has joined us as our as our first outreach and promotion librarian who's really planning for those spaces and then for those interactions um, as we move ahead 
and it's more than just a book display. Yes. Because in, in, in the old days, you know, back in the 90s, <laughs> that's the old days anymore, uh, you know, it, it used to be, okay, we put up a book display and that's all we can, we're going to do about whatever this particular event is. And now we see it in public as well where you're now engaged and having programming, not just have making a book display, but having robust programming that's going to support and facilitate uh, education with regard to that particular event, whether it's Black History Month or whether it's um, you know a, a, a national day for libraries or anything else. You want to be able to forward the idea and, and educate people who don't necessarily know what those things are. And in the public sector, in the public libraries, we get a great turnout for those things, and people learn. So I'm sure in, in the college level, it's, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's yes. been a great learning experience. Yeah. Um, I know recently we've had two student ambassadors doing social media, teaching us how to use social media, um, promoting our ideas um, just before Tatiana arrived in ways that we didn't even realize um, because the students know how to communicate with each other. So by tapping a couple of very, very interesting, bright students who who had social media skills that weren't even in their areas of study. They just happened to be great videographers and communicators. It's created this fantastic conversation where we're able to bounce all of our new ideas off of them. And uh, they've really taken the ball and run with it. I'm sure Tatiana's excited to do more work with them. Yes, it's, it's great working with them. And I know a lot of libraries are sometimes a bit risk averse and they don't want to cede that kind of control to students or their users. Um, but um, it's definitely paid off dividends for, for us. Yeah, and social media is such a big part of, of, of the, the, um, the climate of what we do now. Whether you're watching the news or you're watching a television show, there's always that what they call the two screen experience now which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, because, you know. It's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's thing, and it's do. what culture, our, our society and culture has now merged and migrated towards. So to embrace that and move forward with it, it's just another way to promote what's happening at the library. That's what we see, is everything's multimodal. Um, and we're fortunate on campus, too. Not only are we central, um, but we've got fantastic partners on campus. So RIT folks are great. Uh, we're getting huge new support from the administration and communications. Um, so it just makes everything more intense, but uh, collaborative as well. It just feels good to be doing it all together. And folks understand the library's message more here on this campus than a number of places where I've worked. So we don't have to explain as much about what our mission is. We're able to do a lot more and have people um, react to it, which is great. We want to have those conversations. People, it's not, they're not complaining. They're just saying, where is this, and how do I get this, and how do I do that? And uh, that's and, fantastic. And we're seeing new expectations that we have to consider um, as we brought, bring in inter more international students, for instance, and, yes. um, who come in with you know, different expectations or different understandings about the library. And then we, as libraries, uh, librarians and staff, need to understand you know, how our, our new group of uh, students coming in from China, from India, uh, wherever, uh, understand what we're doing and how we need to accommodate to their needs to make this space much more inclusive. Um, and so, uh, 
our library system also, our libraries here, our staff, and all the folks involved, um, it's just been tremendous, the outpouring of ideas and uh, participation from all levels of staff. So it's not just the librarians. We've got a very great culture here of, of uh, determination from folks uh, from the ground up. Um, so we've got people who are doing acquisitions work, who see new materials every day, and say, oh, we should be telling the, you know, these departments about this. Why can't, when somebody comes in the door, why don't we know that they're in nursing and show them the latest nursing materials that come in? So we're, we're encouraging and fostering that environment, and uh, the dean has, and it's, it's been working out wonderfully. So we, we have a lot of ideas. We have a chance to experiment with them. The campus is paying attention. It's quite a nurturing environment here for even us uh, seasoned librarians. Well, it also seems too, I mean, and I've been out of college for a very long time now, but it used to seem that each department would be an island unto themselves. And then there would be a bridge going to the library because they needed the resources and materials to either share with their students through reserves or to suggest something for the collection. But here at Adelphi, and I know there are a couple of the colleges that I have some relationships with, it's that, that whole mindset has changed where the departments now talk to each other. It becomes almost interdisciplinary. Oh yes. To a point where there's cross, there's a lot of crossover, and I think a lot of that has to do with technology, and of course the library, because the library seems to be the center where all the departments feed into. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. And uh, we're having a lot of uh, very rich conversations on that right now with faculty around how um, we help curate and disseminate their scholarship. Uh, through uh, an institutional repository that we've developed, and I know our can, can our digital commons, digital commons. It's just being launched next week uh, yeah. officially. It's been live for a little while while we get it running, mm -hmm. but uh, we're working closely with campus partners on a, a, an in-house faculty profile system that the faculty have uh, actually demanded uh, over the years and have gotten uh, in cooperation with IT. And so we're um, deeply involved in working with all the faculty committees on campus. We're welcome partners in scholarship committee, technology committees, and so forth. We, the, the library committee is very robust. So we've had these great conversations with faculty who've already wanted to elevate their scholarship and publicize more and been willing to be patient with us and work and say, Oh, maybe we could do, maybe it could do this, maybe it could do that. What about Academia EDU, ResearchGate, and so forth? Why don't we use them? And we have an opportunity to really educate them about the benefits of um, a, a library's sponsored system where we've got this hosting for faculty showcase of scholarship. And it's, it's what the faculty have been asking for, so it's, boy, is it our pleasure to, to work on it. We might ask for more support next time and have a few more staff people to run it. But uh, that's the challenge of libraries, is always doing more with less, right? That's, Absolutely. That's been our history. So the, the digital area is exciting. It's a new format. Um, and we actually, we have more and more students coming in and faculty members who are conversant. So we don't have that hurdle to get over. We don't have to teach people about what digital is. Um, and we love to have people come to the library and demand things of us because then we go to the administration and say, hey, we have to provide this. And, uh, well, it's patron service, right? Absolutely. Like anything else, it, the patron has a need 
and you meet that need and expectation. And now it seems to be more than anything else. Nowadays, it's digital. Um, the books are still there. Books aren't going away. You know, you hear the old people saying, "Books are going away. We're never going to read look in five years, ten years. There won't be books. There's always going to be books. Let's, let's be realistic about that." So we're always going to have that. But the digital end of what we do now has become such a, a monster, and in a good way, a monster. It's become this, this this large chunk of what we do, where it was 90% books and 10% other information. Then the CD-ROM towers came. And we're going to get into this later. I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit. Then the CD-ROM towers. Then from CD-ROM towers to databases. And then databases to web-based materials. And it just built on and on and on and on. And think about it, and we'll talk about this. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. But the idea that now we're taking huge spaces and crunching all of that information into smaller spaces. So now we can do some of the other things, the collaborative spaces, the, the spaces for students to come and maybe even professors to bring the students to hold a class or do some special research work here. It allows you to be more of a proactive librarian versus the gatekeeper of the, of the information. And the collections are actually increased as digital, such as the uh, mm -hmm. streaming video that we have through Canopy and Digital Theater Plus. So uh, it's great for the professors, too. They can embed in their Moodle for homework. The students can watch a movie. Nobody has to say, I checked out the VHS. <laughs> Where would I play it? Or somebody checked out the reserve, and now I don't have a copy of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely more collaborative. So before we go any further and have any more spoilers for our next segment, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into all this great stuff. So we'll be back in just a moment. We've lost two guests because they had a meeting to go to. So we're still with Brian Lamb and Sally Stiglitz, but Tatiana and Ken had to run off to a meeting. So we're hoping to get them to come in another day. Um, so let us, let's, let's talk about, um, about the library, talking uh, whether or not it's a public, corporate, legal, medical, or academic library environment. One thing that's universal is information, right? Because that's what we do. Uh, access is the most, you know, the main focus of libraries throughout history. And access, you know, means many things through history with libraries, like we were talking about before, paper versus digital. Um, so we started with paper, might, then we progressed towards microfilm and microfiche, and then digitization to CD-ROM towers, which we kind of alluded to earlier, and then databases. Now there's a lot of web-based resources that we use, and now it's even going further than that with self-digitizing of materials that are here and, and other places so you can share information without having to do an interlibrary loan or... Um, damaging maybe some critical or sensitive materials. So um, what's happening here at, at Zorbo with regard to th that greater access? Uh, that's a great question, and one of the uh, biggest efforts we're, we're making right now um, is to uh, provide more digital resources, traditional library resources, uh, through the Internet. And uh, more and more of our collection dollars are going to, uh, to support uh, the licensing of databases, the purchasing of ebooks, um, or actually outright purchasing ebooks, 
and that's you know fairly common right now in the public library as well. But we're really moving in that direction because uh, by providing greater digital access to library resources, we're making our resources more accessible to our our students, our faculty, who are not all here on this campus. Uh, we are you know developing at this university more online programming. Um, online educational opportunities. We have students who never set on foot on this campus. Just, so you do a distance learning? We do distance learning. Um, I recently saw uh, a chat interaction record, uh, we do chat reference here, of a student in Arizona who, wanted, who wanted help with uh, his course, I think it was in the health sciences, and we provided him uh, access or, or pointed him to the direction of one of our uh, great uh, uh, LibGuides, uh, which is uh, a resource that it provides a gateway to the plethora of resources that we have here digitally and in print. And I know Sally can talk more about LibGuides because you've been working on it intensively as a yeah. uh, learning, digital learning librarian. So we actually have taken steps to um, raise the profile and accessibility of our LibGuides by adding some meaningful tags, and we uh, flipped a switch to make them searchable in Google, which they had not previously been, and also using friendly URLs. So people who are searching on a topic, whether they're students here or not, are going to be aware that we have these amazing resources, and we've actually had some of ours um, copied with permission through the, uh, the licensing, Creative Commons licensing from other institutions who've seen our guides, like our fake news guides, which got a lot of attention, and. Uh, they say, hey, we'd love to have one just like this. And we're like, it's okay to take it, but you have to give attribution. Sure. So it's a nice way to share as librarians while still um, having the credit go back to the university. And that does make sense because you do want to get credit for your work, but you still want to be able to share the information that you've, that you've yeah. archived, not archived, you've, you've kind of curated. Curated. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a balance between the idea of openness and uh, credit. And um, speaking of specific resources, uh, you know, Sally mentioned Canopy, which is a st streaming uh, uh, films database, which we started uh, with licensing a couple, about a year or so ago. And now it's becoming something that the greater uh, university students and faculty are recognizing uh, and using more yes. and more. And now we're considering it for yeah. the film festival. Right. Now that they're aware that we have those resources, our uh, DACA and Immigration International Students Group is thinking of putting on a film festival, and they're aware that we have Canopy and that it comes with the uh, license to, for public performance. And so that's an amazing resource for them to recognize that and want to incorporate it. And this is just another example of how libraries are transforming think about if that was even something that could be done 15, 20 years ago. It may be it could have, but it would have been a lot more labor intensive, and it probably would cost a lot more money to do. Right. I and think as our collections are changing, they're seeing us more as partners. Right, exactly. And speaking of expanding our access, uh, enabled by you know, digital technology and mobility, uh, we're going to be uh, in initiating a pop-up reference station, I guess that's what I would call it, in the building that I'm looking at right, right now across from my office, the Nexus building, which is the newest building on this, at this university, uh, which houses the nursing and public health departments and admissions, et cetera. Uh, 
we are now working with the nursing and public health department to have pop-up reference stations at critical points during the semester, this upcoming semester. Uh, we found that, uh, you know, just bringing, you know, uh, uh, having a laptop and having a librarian attached to the laptop, a human presence, mm -hmm. uh, in that building will be very beneficial because a lot of those students don't come into the library because it's so crowded. Right. And that building that I'm looking at right now has these wonderful big spaces for group collaboration and study, and the students over there would love us to go there to provide, provide the services. I know that uh, mobile reference, roving reference, or whatever you want to call it, pop-up reference has been sort of on, on the agenda for many academic libraries, and now we're doing it. I and think the fluidity of it is uh, not being tied to a desk or moving our desk, as we're talking about, to where the students are. Yes. Making ourselves visible and available. And there's been a virtual clamor um, by the librarians here to really make themselves more visible to the students. You know, our, our reference desk is on the second floor, uh, which is an obstacle for students, you know, a psychological obstacle. You know, they come into the first floor, they want help immediately. Mm -hmm. and, and when we did our trial, the feedback we got was, I came over because I saw you here. People who would not have come to the desk upstairs at all. Yeah, do you want to talk about that trial a little more? <laughs> so we, um, we table a tablecloth and a laptop and a chair. <laughs> we went very low tech and put ourselves literally at the entrance of the library where the students were walking in before they could uh, get themselves settled. And we had a sign, a whiteboard saying, we're, you know, ask us, we're here to help you. And students came, some of them came right over with their questions. And they weren't planning on going to a reference desk, but once they saw us, we were in their face and they absolutely needed help. It was very successful. Yeah, and that we just did that, was it last? Last uh, month. Last, last month. December. December, month and a half. Yeah. Now, now, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Taking the model of a library, whether it's academic, public, whatever, and, and having the idea that there's a desk and people have to come to this desk, you know, where, where the, the, the gatekeeper is, right? And taking that model, and it's still there. We're not crumpling it up, throwing it out, but we're actually taking it to where the people are. Visibility. Visibility, accessibility, yeah. all of these approachability things. Approachability also. Exactly, approachability is, is probably one of the biggest things. I agree. Because sometimes you get a freshman, they're scared, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where to go. They don't know where the reference desk is. They're lucky they know where the library is. And now there's a friendly face that's sitting wherever, and they walk past it and said, oh, yeah, I do have a question. How about where's the library? Something, a simple question like that that may be lost in the ether of I'm not, I don't have enough time because I have to get my coffee, I have to go to class, I have papers to write, I have this. And now all of a sudden it grabs that attention for 10 seconds. And by the same token, we're on their laptops you know, uh, ask us virtual chat. So if they're looking in the catalog, looking at our resources, looking at our LibGuides, they're gonna see an ask us chat. They can be anywhere in the world, 24, no, we're not available 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> not yet at least, right? Um, and that's another way of being in their face and accessible. And that's all part of, uh, you know, this university's thinking about how this university needs to be student-ready college, a student-ready university. And that's a phrase that's not my own creation that comes out of the book that I'm pointing to right now, Becoming 
a student-ready college, uh, which was published by the American Association of College and Universities. And uh, we're really cleaving to the ideas and, you know, we need to see ourselves, all of us in a library, not just librarians, but staff, including clerks and administrators. All of us are educators making uh, our libraries much more forward-facing, student-ready, student-friendly. We need to meet the students where they are. We can't yes. have the expectation that they have to be all ready for us. Correct. Uh, you know. So in that same vein, I am the liaison to the Hopog Center, which is, um, they're not traditional students. They're uh, older, they're busy, they have jobs. And uh, we find that the library isn't as frequented as much as we want, so we're piloting some programs out there to get them engaged. And one of them is this uh, new Twitter uh, at Adelphi Sally, <laughs> where uh, <laughs> I'm going to be able, if they can follow me on Twitter, then they're going to be able to contact me to get onto live chat with me. I could announce when live chat is available. I could promote resources related to their assignments. And we're hoping that this will catch on so that it's more of a, you don't have to be on campus to have access to a librarian. One thing that, that kind of popped into my head as we were talking is the, the term institution, right? So a college is an institution. And when you think of the word institution, we were talking before the podcast began about the paper chase. Um, you know, John Houseman, and he's wearing his bow tie, and he's sitting in a room that's all paneled with wood paneling and bookshelves. And, you know, to get an audience with him was a big deal. And that model isn't, I mean, maybe at Harvard or something like that, but at most universities around, around the country, and I'd even say around the world, that model is completely turned 180 degrees. Yes. You know, we're not where we meaning the college university setting or libraries even just the whole the grand scheme of, of higher education has turned that model around from what can we do for you not what can you do when you make an appointment with us and then we tell, tell you only half of what's going on and then you have to figure out the rest yourself the, the model really has changed isn't it absolutely and uh, what we're doing here in the libraries is partnering with uh, the learning and Writing Center and uh, Academic Services and Student Life, that entire department, which is really about student advising to uh, connect with those departments uh, digitally through an advising system that really connects to the student more directly. We, we're, our university is going through this huge transformation of how we advise students, how we work with students, how we are more approachable students, not just through the libraries, but through everything that we do, through the teaching that happens in the classroom, through the advising that happens individually with faculty and student or uh, administrator or clerk and student. Um, there's a, a whole scale transformation that's happening that we're part of. Yeah, we're very invested in student success yeah. as opposed to the John Hausman model, which is uh, maybe you'll make it, maybe you won't. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yes, and that investment in, into students Student success means that the libraries uh, uh, needs to, we're expected to show how we contribute to that student success. And we're now looking at ways and measuring ways that we uh, are contributing to student retention, to uh, higher GPAs. I know that Sally can talk about that more because uh, you've been involved in those efforts. Um, well, what do you mean with the higher GPA? Well, oh, well, we are monitoring teaching. students. We have been teaching a three-credit class 
uh, that's a first year seminar and this is the first time the library's been involved in such an effort and uh, I like to say sometimes that I think I learned as much as they did because even though we teach we don't always see the next day what we've taught because usually we're doing one shots so this is a great way to understand student learning and student success and what works with them and what's not working and what gets their attention and what their needs are so uh, it's been a great experience for us that we can bring not just back to other three credit classes but to our uh, one shots and we have great feedback from them as well that we can use and we just sent you the evaluations and uh, yeah it's been a very good experience for us to be able to get it back. sounds like again using that the C word collaboration mm. you know as much as you're teaching you're learning and then you take what you've learned to then apply to what you do here yes. and transform that to make it more student-friendly. Yeah, and we also have a population here, a program called the Bridges Program. That's for, uh, it's a great program. It's, uh, there aren't that many programs like this. It's for students with, uh, on autism spectrum, high-functioning students who really need support. And we have uh, a librarian, James, uh, who is the liaison to that program. He works with them um, as well. So we're very supportive of all of our students, very aware that we have students with different needs to support their success. And that's important because that's, that's an upcoming population that hopefully won't be underserved when they reach the higher, higher levels of education. It's and a very needed program. Absolutely, and we've uh, made a special outreach to the students in that program, the Bridges program, uh, to bring in their students as student workers in the library. And that's uh, with the leadership of uh, Librarian James Cho. Uh, who's our metadata specialist and cataloger, and who early on identified students on the spectrum as being very skilled with, you know, precise library technical work, uh, cataloging. Sure. And he's, uh, you know, reached out to the Bridges program to bring in the first uh, student uh, to work with him, uh, who's on the spectrum, and we're we're now building that effort and building that program. To be more in inclusive, not just in the way we reach out to students as ordinary customers of information here, but students who are uh, our staff. You know, we're trying to open up our our staff, our our, our department organizationally to having students as part of our uh, our workforce. Like our social media students, exactly, are extraordinary, it, absolutely extraordinary. And we get something from them, and we give them something. Yeah. They get a wonderful experience. And uh, some of the students are also doing uh, graphic design for us. As we are doing more marketing and outreach, uh, we're no longer just you know putting together sort of uh, you know amateurish-looking flyers that come out of a mimeograph. Right. Uh, right. We realize we need to be very visually sophisticated in how we communicate our message. And so, you know, getting the students who are oftentimes uh, 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 graphic design students in internships at this university, uh, we've been able to deploy them and then hire them. So it goes back to your point about collaboration. We're collaborating with the students to make the library a better place as well. Yeah. And, and you almost have to, and I, I use the word competition as a friendly competition you're competing with clubs you're competing you're competing with sororities and fraternities you're competing with other departments for the student attention now libraries are unique in that 
you're competing for attention for things that they need versus things, it's a need versus a want, right? I want to be in a sorority versus I need to go to the library because I need these materials or I need to use libraries databases because I'm, you know, it's part of what I'm doing. That's why I'm here. But you're still competing for the attention of the students in a certain respect, right? A bit, yes. There are a lot of activities on this campus and they've been increased especially as we're trying to, uh, as a university, market the uh, student uh, services and student life uh, opportunities, uh, activities uh, for the students who live here and who don't live here um, to really improve the sort of atmosphere of this campus. Um, however, students are not just seeking coming to the library because of need. They're now coming because they want to be here. They see it as a, a, as a social space, as a cultural That's space. That's the buy-in. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, the Games Club, which has got a significant number of members here, and they're interested not just in digital games, but they're interested in table, table games, board games. They have sought us out because they realized they could have a place here because we have these incredible labs where they can, you know, uh, test out their video games. A lot of them are creating video games and, or, or digital games. Um, they've sought us out as a place to congregate. And uh, you heard from Tatiana Bryant, our outreach librarian, uh, a bit. Um, she can, she's can. she been working with that uh, games club to develop a program which we will have in this spring where there'll be an event on a Friday afternoon for a couple of hours where We'll open up our uh, very high-tech uh, digital instructional spaces to them, and there'll be an opportunity for them to, to meet and play. And the international students groups are also connected to that, and they want to be part of it. So they're coming here, not by Perfect. need, but because they want to, and they see there's a buzz of activity here. And that makes a lot of sense. And we're getting, uh, you know, requests from other parts of the university who see this as a vibrant space for cultural activities. I've just recently had a conversation with the uh, dean of the business school who really has been wanting to have an opportunity for uh, a speaker on, you know, from industry or business to be presenting in the library. Uh, just because, you know, we're a place of learning and it's, we're an attractive space on campus. And, and, uh, it's, and it would be an attractive draw to have an event here rather than someplace else on campus which may not be as lively or uh, uh, attractive or... Uh, or have the space to handle students. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The space, at the end of the day, space is a huge concern. Yeah. And aware about learning and learning isn't just books. Exactly. Exactly. So switching gears for a second, you know, tell us about Zorbel and how it relates to working with the admin administrative, in, I can't talk today, administrative departments here at the college, uh, your interrelationship with department heads and, and the professionals who work in those departments. I mean, back when I was in college and probably when you were in college too, your interaction was, I have these things to put on reserve and they can only make 10 copies. And and then that was the extent. Maybe you had a professor that was really cool would sit and talk to you for a little while. Now it's it, it's a collaborative effort, right? Absolutely. And I, I know that uh, all of our librarians have uh, 
liaisonships, liaisonships with academic departments here. And, and liaisonships are, those kinds of liaisonships are really a traditional model, but that model be, is being transformed with the work that Prince and Sally is doing. Um, I won't tell them I'm going to ask Sally to talk about this more specifically. About how book? Um, your liaisonships with faculty oh, and, and yeah. reaching out to the communications department and that kind of work. You know, it's, it's been very good. Um, I find that you build these relationships slowly. People come to trust you. Uh, you share information with them that I think is of interest to them in their scholarship. They each have individual scholarship programs. They come to me for their individual uh, research needs. We have one professor who's doing research on nuclear energy who comes pretty frequently for that. And then it develops, you know, can you teach this class? Can you help me find articles on this? And that builds a great relationship. And we're also doing some very interesting and unusual work as a librarian, as a partnering with administrative departments. That started when we, they needed some assistance doing some research for um, notable alumni. And that's the uh, um, advancement office. So we were able to do research using our databases uh, to find biographical and news information on the university's notable alumni and really enrich their, uh, their records. And then uh, we put together a lib guide of resources for them so that it's, um, it's not a public guide, but it's, they have it, where they can use our different databases, some, like something about the author, or um, uh, we have a great many business databases that are excellent for locating uh, CEOs of companies who might have gone to Adelphi, and they, these are great, uh, great resources for them. So they, they really appreciated that value that we offered. And then we also partnered with the um, uh, DACA Immigration and International Students Organization that was formed about a year ago in response to uh, the travel bans. There was a lot of concern because we have a large international population like most universities. So um, when that announcement went around campus, we decided to create a LibGuide um, offering scholarly and also internet resources for students and faculty, and that has grown into an amazing resource and partnership with them. Uh, and that was with the uh, uh, leadership of the Vice President for Diversity and Inclusion. That's correct. And you're on Perry Green. Yeah, and I'm on that committee. They very kindly invited me, so usually they might not invite a librarian to do that. And uh, we started providing resources and the guide for them, and they said, this is great. We'd like to partner with you some more. Please come. And now we're talking. We just started something called Common Threads. It's a blog that's on our LibGuide. I'll send you a link later. Excellent. It's amazing. Um, this was an idea that I had where we thought we could um, share stories of uh, family struggles because we could see that the students who maybe had the um, – their immigration or international um, status, they were concerned about their status on campus, we wanted to show that their stories were not unique and that people had been struggling uh, with barriers and uh, perceptions for a long time. So Dean Lynn wrote the first one. Um, it's an amazing story of his family's uh, struggles um, over more than a century in the mm -hmm. United States. And we're going to be adding some additional ones and uh, pushing them out. Um, it's a great project. I'll send it to you later. <laughs> yes, I, I look forward to that because I can link it to That'd our information wonderful. page uh, on our website for the podcast. And uh, the provost recently reached out to me to request a libguide on a very difficult topic that's, you know, uh, we're dealing with as a university is, is part of, you know, 
a larger national problem, and that's uh, living it on um, sexual harassment. And I know right. Sally, I asked Sally to do work on that, and it, it's already been promoted by the provost to all the deans as an important resource. It's a great way to gather. LibGuides are a great framework tool to gather resources that are really across campus in different departments. They might be through um, campus security, they might be through administration, they might be departmental, and you can really gather them and focus them, and then we were able to offer scholarly resources as well because that's really our jam. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly. So it's, it's great that you have those resources available, and LibGuides are nice because they're self-contained. You know what I mean? They, yeah. they're, they're specific they to that point, and, and they get to the point. You, know, you design them as you want them. So it's a great tool. Absolutely. That is great. Uh, so let's talk about innovative reference work. We were talking before about, you know, putting the reference desk out there in the field. Um, you know, because the reference desk, you know, is, is transforming. It always has been transforming, but now it's, it's finally moving away from the monolithic desk of information to smaller desks and even... I hate to use the word roving because it's so detested by many mm -hmm. librarians. And it's not the idea that you're going and, and soliciting people, do you need help, do you need help? Because nobody likes to be grabbed in a store and said, do you need help with something? I mean, what's the percentage? 1% of somebody says, yeah, I do need help. The rest of the time, leave me alone, I'm shopping. So the whole idea of being not a rover, but being portable makes so much sense in what we do now. Um, and just the visibility of having a librarian walking around. Because I know in, in public, if I'm walking around and I go bring a patron to the shelf, I may get asked two or three times before I make it back to the desk about some other material they're looking for. And now I have to say, come back to the desk. Walk all the way back there so then I can look it up so that we can come all the way back here. So what we're doing over at Satrum is trying to keep a little more mobile with iPads to all of our resources right there on the screen. So, I, oh, you want to look for this? Okay, pop up the catalog, you look for the title they're looking for, and wow, we haven't left the general area we were standing in. What are you doing here at uh, the library? Not necessarily that model, but what are you doing, like you were saying before, going out into the field? Uh, we are now developing and going to be deploying iKiosks around the campus, which will not just be an iPad on a table, but they will be uh, staffed stations mm -hmm. around key points on the campus. And that's what we're going to be doing in the Nexus building, supporting the uh, nursing and public health uh, department and its, its students. And I'm working with the deans right now to identify other places on campus. Um, and to the development of these iKiosks is, is in our own library strategic plan, and it's supported by the university strategic plan to make the library more visible and accessible to students. Because as we know, uh, students tend to congregate in their favorite places and spaces uh, at campus like ours uh, or anywhere, and that place or space may not be the library. You know, maybe the dance department. It may be the uh, uh, exercise science department where the, the, the graduate students have their own lab and they never leave that because <laughs> they don't have time to do that, right. to go outside. Uh, so all of us, me with the deans, the librarians, with the faculty, are seeking opportunities to expand this uh, 
kind of program to have iKiosk, as we're calling it. Um, apologies to Apple, Apple not <laughs> taking <laughs> that <Copyright>. name. <laughs> so yeah, that's increasing visibility and accessibility, and we're also increasing our approachability by moving our desk and the pop-ups. But we're also taking a different tack that may seem a little counterintuitive, but we're promoting appointments more. Yes. Because we think we can serve the students best if they have an appointment um, for their research and not are showing up at the reference desk when there are other people there at the last second. So you're talking about a, an in-depth reference yes. question as opposed to, I'm looking for this book and it's you know right, this number, how do you help me find it? Or I'm looking for a book about uh, Harry Truman. You're right. This is more, I have a research project, I'm working on molecular biology in this particular area so you can and we have Reserve specialists, time. so you could go to one of the specialists versus just you know somebody says, well, I'm going to start with you, and then you can catch up with that other person. So by promoting these appointments, we're giving them better service. It's really, I mean, we have a lot of hours available, so it's flexibility. Students tend to want to do things at the absolute last second, and we're, you know, we're encouraging them like parents <laughs> to be <laughs> yeah. a little more prepared. And we're hoping that this will catch on with them because once I think once you've had them as an appointment, they tend to come back. They see the value of it. And uh, what we're doing to promote these appointments, these uh, research consultations by appointment, is to link the appointment system to the student advising system, uh, which we're now implementing. It's a digital advising system that uh, the university adopted and uh, is using to really uh, help with student success. So for instance, if a student advisor faculty member or administrator who's advising counsel, whatever, sees that the student in front of them needs help with research, with library research. They can simply uh, look on their screen and press a button and make an appointment or push that student to the librarian to make an appointment. And they get right to there. the most appropriate librarian yeah. that they need at that time. So these kinds of, of, of digital improvements is for making our services more accessible and what we do as educators. It's and removing barriers. Don't yeah, you removing think? barriers. Yeah. And that's a huge, huge thing for us. Um, so. Because uh, I'm even thinking in terms of, uh, you know that, let's say the engineering department has classes during this time and this time and this time. You know that you can schedule around when those classes are so then you could be made available as a library professional during the times when there aren't classes, as opposed to saying, these are our schedules and this is what they are, and they just so happen to coincide with every engineering class. Yeah. That's a great plan. Absolutely. Let's take that. Yeah, let's do that. Remember that <laughs> Exactly. You know, play with, you know, look at their schedules to see when it would be the most, you know, effective time to re reach those students. And that's what we've, we've just done with the nursing department and public health department. We met with the deans. I brought in our new coordinator of instructional services and our liaison uh, to the nursing department, uh, two, you know, two, two librarians, to meet with the deans in the nursing and public health school to really figure out, okay, how do we schedule our presence, the pop-up reference, the iKiosk, whatever, in, uh, in their building to best serve them? So we looked at schedules. And so we've identified a schedule. So when we, we're gonna show up, at these prime times when these classes uh, are letting out or... Uh, or That's exactly the, what I was envisioning as I was sitting there at my kiosk waiting. I'm like, okay, class ends at 1.30 and now everybody comes out. 
Yeah. Now, oh no, I have thirty people standing in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean that's that's the concept, right? That's you want to be there we want when they're people. there. When they're there, that's <laughs> yeah. the underlying thing. We we want to be there when they're there. And uh, just a side note, I was in that new building, the Nexus building, in one of the their fabulous classrooms. All the classrooms are fabulous. And walked into a room that was filled with students. I thought, what class is going on here? Because we were we had scheduled a library meeting over there. And I found out it was a, student, a bunch of nursing students who told me they like to study together as a group in that building, in that room, and they don't want to come over to the library, which is just across the way, because it's too noisy here. So mm -hmm. that just really you know, confirmed and reaffirmed uh, my commitment as the dean to really promote our presence elsewhere on campus, face-to-face, -face, plus digital. Because um, you need both. You, you can't just both. have the digital. You can't. You have to have the the human interaction, the face to face. You need you know, the reference interview. Is what you need. Absolutely, and that's where you know I go back to my roots as a reference librarian, I, uh, and, and I always valued that human interaction. I, I don't think that anything will place that in that research consultation slash reference interaction. I mean, you can, you know, maybe there will be something, you know two decades from now, whatever, because of advancements in artificial intelligence and face recognition software and all that, I'm a believer in that the importance of connecting human to human. Yeah, it's very valuable. And it also was great to see the light bulb go off, right? right. Yeah, yeah. To see that, that, that moment where they get it. The bulb goes on, and now they come back to you two months later and say, because of that interaction we had, Look at what I've been able to, you know, curate and turn into this paper, and it, I got an A. And thank you. And the I essence mean, of the reference, um, the reference process is what they think their question is is quite not often not their question. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. But or my favorite when I was working with doctoral students at Dowling was um, they would come in and they would keep putting the same question into these databases, <laughs> and you would tweak <laughs> one word, and Wow! Look, it's all these new materials. You, you, I, their biggest friend is synonyms, right? Right. So try a synonym to this one particular term of art, and maybe you're using that term of art because you need to change it to a, a, a natural synonym. It's something that's not necessarily tailored towards your profession, and see what you get. You may get journal articles from Mongolia. It doesn't matter if the material is there and it's backed up by the research. It doesn't matter. I and think that's what we have to offer. Yeah, and that's what our job is as library professionals is to offer that perspective from a different angle. Because when you take a picture of somebody face it, facing one way, it may look one way, but if you turn sideways, it's a completely different picture. And I think students get tunnel vision and they don't see the forest through the trees when it comes to that. They're looking, they, all they have in their head is the goal without the journey. And we help them with the journey. And part of it, assisting with the journey is really about having a heart-to-heart -heart connection with the student. Uh, it's an emotional connection. You're, you're present there with the student in a way that you can't be just digitally. I mean, Correct. Uh, and the digital, as much as I'm a fan of all things digital, uh, there are aspects to it that really have to be compensated for. 
that, that human interaction is, is, is something that's that's so important to have face to face that cannot be replicated. I think. Um, but at the same time, the digital has afforded us as librarians, as library professionals, the time to spend more with students one-on-one, -on -one, uh, face to face. We're no longer having to spend lots of time on uh, uh, processes that can be automated. You know, re recently, you know, we just made some huge strides with automating some of our back-end operations, not just you know in cataloging, but with how we purchase materials, you know. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see time savings in a lot of the, the work that uh, had, been, had been going on for years here. And we're now looking around and saying, well, how do we redeploy the staff time for other purposes? And that's gonna be about student-facing work, about, uh, the kinds of work that we have to be doing, uh, you know, to make ourselves student ready. And that, that's important because at the end of the day, we're here to serve for you, the student, for me, the patron. Um, and they're the same thing. It's just a different audience. Right. And at the end of the day, what, what library professionals sometimes lose sight of is we're here to serve at the pleasure of the people that are coming in. And when you lose sight of that simple goal, and it's very simplistic, it's a simplistic model. When you lose sight of that, you've lost sight of what you're doing as a profession and as a professional. So regardless of iPads, kiosks, or any of this other stuff that you're doing, or archiving, or anything else, what's the goal? The, the true, true, simple, the little orange ball sitting at the end of the table, what is that goal? That goal is to serve the people who are coming to use your resources. And I'm not going to say a lot of our people in our profession lose track of that, but there are people that lose sight of that, and it turns into other things. And I think you're doing a great job here, not just with the, the building and the facility, but the fact that you're going out and you're, you're, you're extending as many arms as possible through the whole campus and beyond. It speaks volumes about the way the library is being run, and, and you, should be, you should both be commended for that because it it's commendable to see the forward thinking because our profession unfortunately is not as forward thinking as most as, as we should be and it sounds like you're really pushing the envelope and that's great to see and you know th thanks very much chris you know i think that uh, and that uh, kudos go extends to all of us here uh, and i should point out to you right behind you and our, our listeners can't see this is we have a plan for a new service model, which uh, really speaks about making how we can even uh, you know, uh, improve what we're doing to make ourselves more approachable and, and really serving the students and faculty and the university community. Um, and we are fortunate to have working with us uh, a, a lead organizational consultant in, in the world of, of libraries, uh, Maureen Sullivan, who was the former president of the American Library Association, and she's working with universities and colleges throughout this, this country on their strategic planning with, uh, you know, the, you know the, the, the concept that libraries really have to be here, academic libraries have to be here to serve the students and, and, and their communities in order to justify their existence. And 
And we are not a public entity. Adelphi is a private university. We rely on um, students to come here to support us um, through tuition support. Uh, we're not here because you know we're getting lots of public money to be here. We have to demonstrate our value uh, to, I guess I could put it bluntly, to our customers and our future customers. Stakeholders. Uh, stakeholders is a better <laughs> word. Stakeholders, yes. Yes, I. I, I Investors. I like that. Investors. Because they are invest they're making a huge investment yeah. in coming to college, yeah. sure. And we think they get a good return on investment. A absolutely. Right? And so we're hiring the best people here. I'm looking at Sally. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to help us transform what we're doing. Um, it's the end of the curve. So we're not going to be stuck in an old concept of librarianship. And in academia, uh, librarianship is also often, you know, a very stultified you know, practice, um, and I won't go into the reasons why it is that way. It's just the way it is. But it's the Houseman model. Yeah, exactly. Going back to John Houseman. Yes, John it's Houseman, Houseman model. model. Yes. Um, but we're leaders. Yeah. We make changes before anybody else does. Yeah. And if they don't work, we make a re an adjustment. Right. Uh, and I'm I'm gonna go back to when we were speaking at the Wilbert Conference, and if you haven't heard that episode, you should listen to it. It's a great episode. A bunch of colleagues from all different areas of the profession. Ellen Druda was there. Ellen Druda yeah, was there. Right. $5. That's $10. Okay, she's <laughs> going to win. <laughs> Mega million soon. Gotta love it. Ellen Druda, another $5. Um, you had brought up the concept of failing forward, yes. which I have, I have to give a copyright to you. I've been using it ad nauseum, people are sick of me hearing, hearing me say it at this point, but the concept of failing forward, and okay, you, you've started something here, and if it doesn't work, okay. But you if, even if you take 1% from that and have learned from that to then move forward again, that's a, that's a concept that not a lot of people understand, especially administrators who may not see the, the, the success in failing. So failing forward is... God, you should trademark that. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. I, I have to say, of course, that that's not my uh, uh, phrase. I, I heard it somewhere at some management conference, or you know. But it's a, it's a. I love it. I use it all the time. You know, uh, it's a great attitude because we're not afraid to try. Right, and we, 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 we can't be afraid. You know, and I think that, as as you've alluded to, Chris, um, this is librarianship has been a risk averse uh, profession for the longest time, and we can't afford to be risk-averse. Not to stay relevant. Not to, re yes. Yeah. Um, and and I've been in this profession for, gosh, nearly 30 years. And uh, I've seen the consequences of not being willing to fail for it. You just fail. Right. Because your institution, libraries are part of a larger institution, says, well, you failed. We're going to move on to something else because you've never ventured out of the box. Um, this is a healthy approach. Yeah. We try different things. Some things work. Some things need to be tweaked. Yeah. And, you know, I love that pop-up we did in, in December. You know, that, that was, was That was fun. That was an example of how we took a risk. It was a risk because it was entirely new for us to be doing that. Essentially um, no cost. No cost. Um, but it was risky in that we do have some folks who've been here for decades and who f were challenged by the concept. They were maybe 
they're concerned about the change of losing the value of what we have currently. Ex exactly. But in the end, they saw the value and they fully embraced it. And, and it was because, and they said, oh, what we're doing here was, is going back to the way this library was designed in, in the 1960s, where you had reference on the first floor connected to circulation. So all the service points were beautifully uh, designed to be integrated. It's like a circle. It was like a, a circle. circle of life. And, exactly. <laughs> and I have to attribute that to the architect this, of this building, Richard Neutra, who was a very renowned mid-century architect who was on the cover of Time Magazine, I think in the late 50s, early 60s. He was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, he did very important work, especially on the West Coast, residential work, uh, uh, particularly. He also did some projects on the East Coast, but he was identified by the uh, leaders at Adelphi in the late 50s, early 60s to come here and do an entire campus plan, which was absolutely visionary. And part of that visionary plan included a visionary library and space. And so you'll have to come back, Chris, and interview the archivist about that collection because... That's going to be a fun episode. Because there's a, there is a plan that he had for an automatic book delivery service, a drive-in service. Really? We could drive up to the window Was and skating. on roller skates? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but That's very early 1960s. Yeah. And you would get your book delivered to you on a conveyor belt. I love it. It's the Jetsons. And it was very Jefferson's. And he envisioned, uh, you know, a, a kiosk, a, almost like a flat screen, where you would have magazines facing out, were just the covers, which was very advanced for his time because magazines and libraries, periodical libraries, were displayed very differently in a way that was more about control and act, uh, you know, and uh, not immediate visual uptake and action. It was more of a spatial thing. It was a spatial thing. Yeah. So he envisioned that kind of kiosk, and then he also envisioned, and, and I've seen it in the plan, a rotating globe which would have ticker tape with news from around the world con in 24-7. That's so, an interesting concept. So it was pre-internet. Mm -hmm. you know, it was way beyond anyone's thinking. Unfortunately, a lot, you know, most of that plan was never realized, except for the, the building of our over Library, Swerble Library, which was named after Jake Swerble, who was uh, the president of Grumman Corporation. And Grumman Corporation thankfully supported the construction of this building along with the Dormitory Authority of New York State. Um, so this space, this place was designed for you know, human interaction, service optimization from its, from its beginning. It was forward-looking. It was forward, was forward-looking, and we're the beneficiaries of that design. You know, and, 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 and I'm, I'm a true believer in architecture and design as in influencing the way we use libraries, not just uh, students and faculty, but it's the way our, those of us who work here use and interact the space, which is, is important. Uh, it's got a very open feel, too, it's, which it's is collaborative. Open. It's collaborative, exactly. Yeah. And if I'm looking at, I'm looking at my office here, which looks like, you know, 
a, a beautiful California space, I would call it. Floor to ceiling windows, openness. It's high ceiling, very high, high ceiling. ceiling. And these spaces are meant for interaction and collaboration. And it brings nature in. Brings really. nature in. Uh, and it's important to have the view of nature from the library. And we were fortunate to have that here. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's one of the benefits of being a suburban campus versus an urban campus. Yeah. You know, this is one of the most beautiful campuses I've been to. And I've, I've seen a lot in this country. And one of from those the West Coast, you've seen tons of things. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm from the West Coast. And so this, this whole building and its surrounding landscape has a very California feel. That's really, really neat. It's a, it's a beautiful building from what I've seen of it so far. I can't wait after we're done here today to, to get a tour of it. Um, but if we could just switch gears for a second, um, one thing that I, we've been using collaboration over and over again, I think that, that's the theme of, of what we've been talking about. Do you reach out outside of the university to other libraries and in, in the universities, whether it's SUNY or whether it's another academic library, maybe not even in the state, or maybe even the public libraries? Are there some projects that you work on with them? Um, there's a project that we're working on right now with the Garden City Public Library, and Tatiana Bryant is leading that effort. Um, she had mentioned uh, to you uh, this thing called the Human Library Project, mm -hmm. um, and it's a project that began in Denmark, and now it's starting to take off around the world where uh, people uh, are uh, um, checked out at like books. You know, they come to the library for an event where they uh, can speak about their personal experiences as a war veteran, as an immigrant, um, as a person with experiences different from their audience. And these individuals will be hand-selected, will be coming to this university, the Human Library Project that's being organized here. Uh, and and there'll be appointments set up where they can be checked out like a book. And that project is being co-sponsored with the Garden City Public Library. And uh, when I mentioned this Human Libraries project to our president and our provost, they were amazed to learn about this. Actually, Tatiana brought, brought it up to our president. Mm -hmm. um, and immediately it caught on. Mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a great concept that, and program that the libraries could uh, 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 take the lead on. And, and it gets back to the, the whole notion of and purpose of libraries where libraries, I think, are important places where people connect. Sure. It's about connecting people to information, not just from a machine, but information and interaction with another human being. And that human being is providing information and, and knowledge to some, to somebody they have no idea who they are. We're connecting strangers together um, in a way that's about learning about different experiences. Sure, and it's not just about academic learning either. Right. Because life experiences are another way of learning. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to this program. It's going to be in April. Um, Sounds like a wonderful program. Yeah. And that will, will be scheduled in... Not not in Sorbonne Library, but it'll be in the in um, the alumni house, which is uh, a community uh, um, gathering space. Um, it's open not just to um, our our campus community, but it's a place where Adelphi hosts 
events that are open to the, the wider community. In terms of connecting to other libraries, we are fortunate to be part of a consortium of 18 or so private and university college libraries in New York State. It's called Connect New York, and it includes Vassar and Colgate and Hamilton, Pace, Pratt, um, St. Lawrence. Lawrence on there too? St. Lawrence, uh, Medai, Canisius, um, so up and down the state, and we share resources. We actually share a collection of print resources. We co-own that collection. That's great. So we've been able to weed out from our own individual collections little used titles with the understanding that somebody in our system would own that print title. Um, and we're also sharing the purchasing of uh, and licensing of ebooks, which is a very unusual model in academic libraries. But it makes sense because makes you sense. can defer costs. We can defer costs. So we've seen tremendous cost savings on that. I'm on the board of that. New York. All the directors of each of our member libraries are members of the, that board. Mm -hmm. And we're also beginning to share out our expertise as libra individual libraries. So we're going beyond, under our Connect New York strategic plan, to go beyond just sharing resources. We're now looking at exploring sharing our knowledge, not just as collections librarians or acquisitions librarians, but cataloging librarians. but sharing a knowledge as instruction librarians um, or outreach librarians. Um, so it's, it's a way we're, we're connecting outward. And we're also nested within uh, other consortia locally. Uh, we're part of uh, the Long Island uh, Resources Council, mm -hmm. which is a really uh, excellent consortium here that supports academic and public working together. Yes, and it's a great resource. It's a terrific resource, and I'm on the board of that. I just came from the, uh, a board meeting yesterday, and we're in the process of selecting a new executive director, so that should really be terrific as a way of synergizing all what we're doing together. Absolutely, and energizing, too. And energizing, and we're also part of uh, a similar uh, consortium in New York City called Metro, mm -hmm. and which connects academic libraries and public libraries, and special libraries within New York City. And, and because we have a um, learning hub, a satellite presence in Manhattan, we have a Manhattan campus, uh, Manhattan branch, I guess uh, I would call it. Uh, we're part of Metro. And so That's we're great. also doing some work with SCLA. I'm on the Health Concerns Committee, and uh, we sponsored some programs at Long Island Library. Um, Long Island Library Conference last year. We've got another one proposed for this year. Uh, so that's a combination of public and academic librarians. And uh, recently we started a book group in the library. And so I reached out to Long Island Reads, and we are the first. I'm, they invited me to join their committee, so we're the first academic library involved in that. That's great. That's excellent. Because yeah, I think we're always academics and public yeah. need to communicate more. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a lot to offer each other yeah. more collaboratively. Yeah. And you know what the publics are doing is really user facing. I mean, you have to be your your, your tax base is, is your community, and you have to you know, really pay attention to what your community wants and expects. And sometimes trying to anticipate what they don't know they need yet. Exactly, 
And it's not saying that we want to just do it so we're going to do it and say that. Right. But you can see from what your patrons are doing that they would really benefit from A and B because they're doing C and D. And then when it comes together, it just enhances the model even more. Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from public libraries. There's yeah. a lot we can learn from academics as well. Yeah, and so it's great to have an umbrella organization like the Long Island, like Long Island Library Resources Council, Little Rick, to make to bring us together, like we are here today. Yeah, that's um, how we met. That's right. We <laughs> met at the at the Little Rick uh, conference. Yeah, and it also it, on the public side, it also evaporates that boundary between Nassau County and Suffolk County. Right. Which right. We, I've talked about several times that I think is horrible that there's Nassau and there's Suffolk, and there is not much interaction between the two. And we have Suffolk campuses and a library, and we're trying to uh, promote our uh, visibility there and build some community partnerships there as well. It makes sense, because without partnerships, you're an island. Exactly. Nobody wants to be an island. Right. So, you know, the, the idea of reaching out to Adelphi from Sachem would be, well, they're in the other county and they're academic. Who cares? We care. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in, in the concept of this digital age that we live in, there's no reason why we can't communicate, whether it's electronic mail or video chat or anything else, and then have your occasional face-to-face -face meeting just to discuss ideas. I think right. we have more in common yeah. than we have differences. And Sally's modeling that out at, at, at in, in Suffolk County at, yeah. at our Hop Hop Center. We're definitely... Um, trying to change approaches there and make it more active. We had um, de-stressed activities. We've had, you know, those coloring books. We've got mm -hmm. some very nice crayons, <laughs> um, markers and things like that, and uh, puzzles. And uh, there are a lot of changes we're trying out there, making it um, more of a space and recognizing the unique needs of those students. Makes a lot of sense. It really does. And, you know, the Suffolk, we have to recognize that it's Suffolk, too. You know, the, um, there's a disconnect sometimes for those students between this campus. And so we have to acknowledge them as full partners. It's true. And, and Suffolk County residents, I'm not speaking for all of them, but I'm saying that, you know, some people, you know, they see that the, the 110 corridor is the end of the earth. You know, and to go into Nassau, I went in there in 1982. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, or that's the place you drive through so you can get to the bridge. So then you can go to Pennsylvania or upstate New York or Massachusetts or whatever else. So there is that disconnect with some residents in Suffolk County and for the right. same, for some part, you know, Nassau County too. We're you know, feeling that for sure. Right. And Suffolk is more than just wineries. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three people in this room live in Suffolk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I live in New York. And yeah, so there's this... Speaking of barrier, there's that similar barrier, Nassau County and, you know, Bridget, King and Bridget Queens County. Bridget, yeah. Yep. And, uh, but because Adelphi is in all these places. And Westchester. And we're in West, yeah, and we're upstate uh, in um, Hudson, Valley. Hudson Valley. We have to be a place that is about connecting beyond the boundaries. And that's where, where as libraries, we really are excelling. As a, as a system. Absolutely. I can definitely see it just from just our conversations and what I've seen from the building so far. So why don't we take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to ask Brian and Sally our list of questions we ask all of our guests. We call it our 032 list, and we have to give 
credit to Melanie Cardone Leathers from the Longwood Public Library for giving us the idea for the uh, for the name. So we'll be back in just a moment. Brian Lim and Sally Stiglitz, and we are going, they're going to be our next victim. Did I say victim? I meant participant in our 032 list, and 032 is the Dewey number, which I know you guys don't deal with over here in the academic world. It's the Dewey number for uh, top 10 lists. So our questions in our list are inspired by Literary Hub. It's an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can check out their work by visiting lithub.com. And visit their site because they educate and inform the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. So, this is going to be fun because we were talking about it off mic, how there's so many different answers or sometimes similar answers to the same question. Okay, so first question. What did you want to be when you were a librarian? I mean, when you were, <laughs> you were a librarian. Good job, Chris. What did you want to be when you were a child? I think taller. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I think I just had this vague idea of being in a room with books, and I think that's come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any particular aspiration career-wise or anything. I was just in the moment, being a child. That's uh, refreshing. Okay, qu second question. What was your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? My mom used to take us every week to Brooklyn Public Library. I still have my first card. You had to be able to um, write your name out <laughs> to get a card. And we always went to the bagel store afterwards and got fresh bagels. And that was in Canarsie. Nice. It was amazing. Great bagels. <laughs> my mother, who was a teacher, elementary school teacher, took us kids, my brothers and I, to the local public library in San Francisco. And that was my first memory. The Noe Valley branch, which is still there, and it's probably one of the top branches in the country. How are the bagels there? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, when did you decide to work in a library, and if it wasn't your first career path, because many librarians choose it as a second career path, what was your first path? Um, in my earlier life, I practiced law, and then I stayed home for a long time with my kids, and when I was able to go back to work, Distance education made it possible for me to pursue librarianship because I knew that the parts I loved the most about practicing law were doing research and writing and being in the library, and those really are very strongly tied to librarianship. So I was able to do uh, completely distance education through Clarion University and uh, also care for my kids. My husband worked nights at the time, so going to Queens really wasn't too practical. Uh, and that's how I became a librarian. Very cool. I decided to work in a library when I was a student employee in a library at UC Berkeley. And I got uh, hired to work in the social work branch of uh, the Berkeley campus. And I realized, oh, I actually like doing this. Um, this is my favorite activity at Berkeley. I, uh, it was 
far more fun than going to class and studying and <laughs> working hard and trying to you know, write long papers and take very difficult exams. So this is not a second career? No, it was but my it, first. It's in a way, it's like many careers, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You've evolved so yeah. much. It's really interesting that so many people that work in a library had that experience as a page or a clerk, putting the books away or, you know, retrieving periodicals and things, and they, they make the transition up the ladder. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that your experience is not unique, yeah. but it's still a wonderful experience because that's how you fell in love yeah. with, with the profession. Okay, so when did you, uh, let's see, that was the wrong question, Chris, good job. Okay, so who's your favorite fictional librarian? Uh, I love on Seinfeld, Mr. Bookman. That cracks me oh, up. Oh, that's hysterical. We haven't had that one yet. Oh, really? I, I can't believe that's so. not everybody's number one choice. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's I, on the spot. There's a movie uh, titled Party Girl with Parker Posey in it, and she's a public librarian in New York City. Frankly, I don't remember her, her fictional name, but I remember her character really well. Um, she was really an out-of-the-box, crazy, acting, funny librarian. Um, just on the loose in New York City. Real life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? I think it would be those transferable skills of research and writing, because I really enjoy I actually do research for fun. <laughs> I would be gardening. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. What is your favorite section of the library? Now, we originally intended this to be fiction, nonfiction, history, but with the transformation of libraries, it could be the makerspace, it could be quiet study room, it could be the collaborative area, it could be anything you want it to be. So we have a new periodicals lounge, which was uh, just created by Stephen Berger and uh, Ken Harold, that I think is awesome. We basically just relocated some resources to a sitting area and turned it into an area that really has a focus now. I think it's great. I have to say it's our collaboration studio area, which is right next to the lounger that Sally was talking about. Um, I just love walking through that area, especially at the busiest times of the semester when I see all those places filled up with students working together, collaborating, and you know, using the right boards and connecting all their technology together. Okay, so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? This actually all goes together, but I envision an area that has a fireplace and a wall of glass windows looking out on a roof garden, and uh, there's also coffee. <laughs> and I'll just add to that, I'd have a performing arts space. Nice. Uh, and uh, archives and special collections, reading room, and collections. Uh, moving uh, them to the main uh, library out from the basement of uh, the residence hall. You can put it next to my garden. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you love about your library? As though we haven't, you know, been talking about how great this place is. It's very collaborative and very forward thinking. And I believe much of that is due to Dean Lim's leadership. I, I love um, the people I work with. And, you know, we're all moving ahead together. Sometimes there are bumps in the road. But we overcome them. We keep moving on. And it's a, and the staff here who've been here for the longest time have such enthusiasm and, 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 and inner creativity and knowledge that it, it's wonderful to see them blossom after many, many years of probably non-activity, I would say, uh, just because that's the way libraries work. What is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, 
but weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? Nothing weird has ever happened here. <laughs> but at my previous institution, which was also an academic library, that for cost-saving measures had the lights that turned on by activity. Oh, yeah. So in the stacks in government documents, which was a very quiet area, I actually was walking out there and saw a student sleeping in the government document section using the cereal set as a pillow. I thought it was a dead body. <laughs> I was really startled. Um, last summer, when it was extraordinarily hot, we had a mini invasion of centipedes, I guess, or millipedes from the, uh, the outside. And they all came into our offices and they were dropping from the ceiling. Oh. It, like aliens. It, like aliens. <laughs> it was, wow. They're controlled, thank, thankfully. But it was an interesting, weird thing to happen. They increased our gate count. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't make them pets. <laughs> so uh, who is your favorite regular patron? Or student, in your case. I don't usually have regular patrons, but the patrons I really most enjoy working with are ones who have a digital divide, because there's really more of an aha moment for them. So sometimes they're older students, sometimes they're young, sometimes they don't come from a wealthy background. And when you introduce them to access to resources, they're really appreciative. Um, and for me, since I, I don't work one-on-one -on, -one on the floor with patrons, with students, uh, like Sally does, um, but I do see regulars here who uh, I've acknowledged, you know, said hello to them. And uh, this particular individual is not an Adelphi student or faculty, but he's uh, a member of the public. He's a priest. He comes and uses our uh, one of our reading rooms for quiet study. And it's great just to have him here. I mean, there's something about him that just radiates calm and generosity. And I'm thinking that's a great presence to be uh, have in the library. That's really amazing. Okay, so the last question. What are people without library cards missing out on? We don't actually have library cards, but I'm just gonna think about that. People who are not using libraries, and they are doing things the hard way. Because the whole purpose of libraries is to facilitate, to make things easier, easier access to information, easier um, workflows for people. And if they're not using us, then they're doing things in a more difficult way. And ditto, and uh, specifically, they're missing out on Canopy, our yeah. great Canopy's streaming. Canopy's awesome. Yeah, streaming movies, streaming you video. Could be sitting at the airport yeah. watching a movie for free. Uh, it's one of my favorite resources here that I want everyone to use as an Adelphi. And you know, right. if you have a student ID card or faculty ID card, staff ID card, you have access to it. We also have the New York Times, which is the New York Times, yes. Full text. I wow. am so loving that app. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I love, I just love. Uh, using the resources that we're getting and, and being a patron, being on the other side of the fence. Yeah, we get to use everything. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for answering our silly questions and for being on the podcast. Thank um, you. This thank has been you, a Chris. great experience, and we are definitely coming back for more episodes here because there's so much here to talk about. We Thanks. welcome you heartily. Thank you. Um, if you have any plugs for anything, your Twitter accounts or... Adelphi Sally, at Adelphi Sally. At Adelphi Sally. And uh, for my just general library, professional and personal, I use at Sally Stieglitz. But Adelphi Sally is really going to grow. We're very excited about it. And I have uh, Adelphi, uh, pardon me, how do I communicate this? Uh, AU Library, AU Lib Dean, I think is my Twitter handle. I'm not a digital native. I'm a digital immigrant, so some of the, the these hashtag talk and all that stuff is, is not natural to me, so 
excuse me if I got it mangled a bit, but and we'll put it on the website too. Great. Yeah. And of course, we have our official library uh, t Twitter uh, presence. It's Adelphi Library. Excellent. Well, thank you both for coming on. This has been a great experience. And like I said, we're coming back to do more. Great. Wonderful. Thank so this too. is going to be great. So give me one second. Okay. So that's the old, the old, that's the only, that's enough. We ran out of time for this edition. So if you have any questions or comments on our show, please go to the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. We'll also have uh, links and photos uh, about this episode on our site, along with any of our other episodes. You can check us out. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Library Pros. And please don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Sketcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and any other place you catch uh, podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review because reviews help us uh, get more listeners. And as always, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob, if Bob were here and not afraid of the snow and not those at the Station Public Library, MS Clark, or any other library. So we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>